0: So we had talked originally about doing this sacred stories thing a while back, and then uh, the election happened on Tuesday, and about half the country feels very disoriented right now. And, you know, regardless of your politic, I think the thing that is very disorienting for people is some of the speech and some of the actions that have come from this election cycle, right? We've heard plenty of Islamophobia, homophobia, we've heard a lot of anti-LGBT rhetoric and that kind of thing. And so this is just a very disorienting week. And so because of that, I feel like this is the perfect time for us to be sharing stories of orientation amidst this time that is, like I said, very disorienting, right? And so with with that being said, we're just going to hear from a few people. Uh, they're going to share their, a text, or a piece of art, or uh, a song that has meant something to them, and then we're going to let everybody else have a chance to share in small groups their text and their story of orientation in a time of disorientation. So first up is Wendy. And uh, FYI, just to, just to make it a little bit more smooth, we're going to be playing soft music underneath every storyteller this evening. So. I'm excited about that.
1: <laughs> My name is Wendy Brockhouse, and I'm the assistant curator of The Open Table. And I believe that in some ways storytelling is a, a little adventure in the practice of being vulnerable, because we're sharing things, especially tonight, if we're sharing things that have oriented us, or things that are sacred to us, there's always that risk that they may not feel that way to other people. Um, And so I invite you to make this uh, a place that's safe for yourself and others, and um, hear these sacred words tonight. (coughs) As Nick was mentioning at the beginning of this time, um, the divisiveness and toxicity that's been part of this election season has been pretty overwhelming for me. And on Tuesday night, my husband and I had had enough. We were kind of fed up with that. Um, There's so much of it in the news and everywhere you go. And, and I come from a very um, conservative Christian background with my family. My, both sides of my family are that way. And um, had There was this attitude of not wanting to listen to other people about their beliefs, even if um, in disagreement or agreement, it was very, very difficult for anything, um, any positive conversation to happen in my family for a really long time. And and so we decided that we were going to watch um, The Fellowship of the Ring, <laughs> The Lord of the Rings, um, because it, sometimes it feels like the Nazgul are kind of running things up in here and. Um, You feel like Frodo Baggins trying to take the ring, (laughs) and that's my geek card showing. Um, So that's how we were feeling. And I decided to do, um, you know, have that time with my husband, and also to just to call a friend or two and say, I'm really struggling right now, and it's starting to feel dark. And I gathered my support system around me. Um, I tried to just breathe and be present and. loving and kind of myself and others um, this week. And as I most often do when I'm having a hard time, I looked to the arts for wisdom and for courage. And that meant a little bit of uh, artwork from the Nelson Atkins, a little bit of um, the song Anthem from Leonard Cohen, who unfortunately just passed away this week. a song called I Believe from Blessed Union of Souls, from my high school days, kind of popped up in my mind. And, um, but one thing that really reminded me of the importance of connection and community was from the poet Rumi. Um, Jalal al-Din Muhammad Rumi was a Sufi mystic and a Persian poet living in the 1200s. And um, his poet continues to be really popular today. One of the people who translates his work is um, Coleman Barks and someone asked him why he thinks Rumi is still popular today, why why is he cool. (laughs) And Coleman replied, I feel there is a strong global movement, an impulse that wants to dissolve the boundaries that religions have put up and end the sectarian violence. It is said that people of all religions came to Rumi's funeral in 1273 because, they said, he deepens our faith wherever we are. And um, that that connection of wanting to deepen one's faith regardless of background um, is one that I, is dear to my heart. So this is a poem from Rumi in my sacred text for this evening. Today, like every other day, We wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Out. Beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing there is a field and I'll meet you there When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about Ideas language Even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense So let us deepen our faith wherever we are. Our next storyteller for this evening is Kevin Burns.
2: Like Wendy mentioned, it has been a pretty tough week. Um, Just the whole election season, you know, it was just that, that feeling of it's over, but also um the rhetoric and the politics uh, it was it was just a tough time but as I, as I started thinking about my feelings about the results and who I am and what I've done in my life, I also had this sense of renewal also, um, feeling of renewal towards justice, reconciliation, becoming a more serious uh, man, human being in regards to how I uh, pay attention and just attend to the society, the world I live in. and that that renewal reminded me of another time in my life when I was younger, getting out of high school, uh, very confused about who I was, who I wanted to be, what I was um, and i i, I, I I was the kind of person who would try to fit myself into certain molds uh, or other people's ideas of who I should be. And I found this book by Ralph Ellison called Invisible Man. Um, Invisible Man is a story of a young, college-educated black man struggling to survive and succeed in a racially divided society that refuses to see him as a human being. It's told in the form of first-person narrative, and Invisible Man traces the, the nameless narrator's physical and psychological journey from blind ignorance to a sort of enlightened awareness or according to the author, uh, from purpose to passion to perception. It was published in 1952. It's a great acclaim. Uh, it won the National Book, of, Book Award in 1953. Uh, and it was the first novel written by a black person that had been so honored. <clears throat> so it's, it's been very important in the history of black letters, but it's also been important in the history of American letters. I mean, it is a distinct, distinctly American book. And at one point in my life, I regarded it as a sort of instruction manual for living. Uh, It's a very self-affirming book. Uh, It taught me that I didn't have to try to fit myself into other people's ideas of who I should be or what I am. I'm gonna read a few passages from it. I promise I won't be too long. Uh, Invisibility is defined early in the novel, in the prologue. The narrator says, I am an invisible man. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves, or figments of their imagination. Indeed everything and anything except me. My invisibility isn't exactly a matter of a chemical accident in my epidermis. That's a joke. But <laughs> this 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 that, that one didn't fly too well in that book. But I must say this book is also a very funny book. It's not just this hard race stuff. It, it, it really is has a lot of irony and humor in it. So if you want to pick it up or if you read it before, you probably know that. But uh to continue with the quote. Uh that invisibility to which i refer occurs because of a peculiar disposition of the eyes of those with whom i come in contact it's a matter of the construction of their inner eyes those eyes which with which they look through their physical eyes upon reality and that's the end of the quote and then so then you, you you ask yourself, okay, how does it feel to be invisible? And then, again, here's the narrator. He goes on. You're constantly being bumped against by those of poor vision. Or, again, you often doubt if you really exist. You wonder whether you aren't simply a phantom in other people's minds, say, a figure in a nightmare where the sleeper tries with all his strength to destroy. It's when you feel like this that Out of resentment, you begin to bump people back. And let me confess, you feel that way most of the time. You ache with the need to convince yourself that you do exist in the real world, that you're a part of all the sound and anguish, and you strike out with your fists, you curse, and you swear to make them recognize you. And alas, It is seldom successful. That's the end of the quote. To be black in America is to constantly run up against people who want to tell you who you are, who want to define you based on an article that they've read or some data that they've seen. And you're never really prepared for this bumping up that happens. I remember talking about politics with a coworker earlier this year, it was. And in the midst of the conversation, it wasn't even initially about race, I think we were talking about economics and, you know, taxes, and like those conversations sometimes do they, race, it kind of takes a turn towards that. And he said to me, that black people have a cultural problem, and that until they fix that, the violence in their neighborhoods will persist. Now, I had heard versions of this before, you know, Bill O'Reilly peddles into that kind of junk to justify not having government help fix the problem in American neighborhoods in order to say that nothing can be done about Blacks until they fix the problem themselves. It's usually accompanied by some sort of statistic, you know, that 90% of Blacks are killed by other Blacks. 70% of the prison population is Black. 82% of white people are murdered or killed by Black people. I have no idea if any of those statistics are true. (laughs) Uh, I just made them up, except for the last one. I know that one's a lie, because it was tweeted by the president-elect during the campaign and was quickly refuted. Nevertheless, they sound like they can be true. But the thing about facts is that they're just that, facts. It shouldn't be mistaken for analysis. But we do it all the time. Those stats, uh, uh, that reminds me of one other thing. So just to show it's not just one party or other that does this. There was, I think it was last year, it was a young girl murdered in Chicago and President Obama knew her. She, she had been to the White House to sing before. And so he went to speak at her funeral. And in the midst of that funeral, uh, during the speech, he, he started telling the people there that the problems in their neighborhood are due to not having fathers in the home and just started lecturing them about. Morality, personal morality and responsibility, which I'm all for. I mean, I'm a father, I'm married, have two children, I live in the home. But it's interesting that when Sandy Hook happened, President Obama went to speak at that a uh, memorial, and he didn't mention anything about fathers not being in the home. But that young man did grow up in a single-parent home. Instead, he used that opportunity to talk about gun reform, gun control, um, Need for better psychiatric care. But this, this is what I'm talking about. This, this is the kind of thing that black people have to deal with sometimes. They have to be talked down to. Their problems are theirs. But problems that happen to others in society can be analyzed and fixed and remedied. There's other excuses besides just their personal issues. That was a little digression there. Uh, so, back to statistics, you know, they, uh, those stats prove, statistics usually prove to the one who bandages them about that, what bandages them about, the, uh, they prove to them what they have already fixed in their minds. That's right. That is, that black people are culturally inferior not as evolved, prone to violence. None of those statistics, if taken to be true, tells you one damn thing about why the situation is what it is. We fill that information in with our inner eyes. By the way, Let's stop talking about black neighborhoods, you know. They're your neighborhoods too. They're American neighborhoods. And our people are dying in them. I told my coworker who, when we were having this discussion, I told my coworker, when he told me that, you know, I said, "You, you do know I'm black, right? I felt this needed to be said, <clears throat> but then he told me, yeah, but you grew up in the suburbs, which is cold for you know growing up around white people. I got angry. I got indignant, really, because He didn't know anything about me. He was just making some assumptions about my blackness. In fact, I did grow up in the suburbs. <laughs> but that's besides the point. And uh, he didn't know that either. But this past election has proved it is not only black people who are invisible. If you're an immigrant, or a refugee, or Muslim, or Mexican, or gay, or female, or white male without a college degree, you may understand a bit about how it feels to be invisible. I need to be recognized as, as primal. You hear it today, right now, There are those in this city and in cities around the country protesting the election of Donald Trump. They march, they stand together in large groups, they chant, not my president. When a reporter from the Kansas City City Star asked one protester why she was out there, she said, I just want people to know that I did not select Donald Trump as my president. We all want to be recognized. Perhaps that best sums up what happened this past election season. Michael D'Antonio, at the end of his biography about Donald Trump writes this. In a world where many habitually broadcast photographs of their sandwiches before they are eaten, we no longer agree that Intense self-regard is a sign that something is wrong. It may instead be a reasonable reaction to life in a society where extension of the self through media is an accepted way to escape feeling insignificant. Donald Trump is not a man apart. He is instead merely one of us writ large Given his intense desire to distinguish himself as special, if not sui generis, he is likely to find this conclusion disturbing. It is. For the rest of us, too. Invisible Man, though a great novel, I've found ultimately that it fails as an instruction manual on life. It argues that the key to recognition is self-affirmation, that you get to self-affirmation through self-knowledge, which comes about from a sort of dogged, unblinkered look at your own life, a matter of, of will. For me, I never became more true about my life than when God called me to him. Through knowledge of him, In his will, I have come to know my sin. I have come to a new life in him. Completely visible. Completely known. Thank you.
3: Hello. My name is Caitlin. Thanks for the introduction, Wendy. And my story is that there's a poem that I consider to be a sacred text in my life and it was introduced to me by my friend James. I met James two years ago at a Fringe Festival party. It's a theater festival that happens every year, every summer in Kansas City, and I had received an invitation from the Fringe director in passing, inviting me to this party, and I said yes, and I felt like I had to show up, and I really didn't want to and i did go i didn't know anyone there and uh, over the last year and a half of my life i had been through a lot of health issues and uh, i was scanning the room and looking for someone else by themselves because i always had read that if you look for someone else alone they'll probably talk to you since they're by themselves too and i saw james and i noticed his pokemon keychain and i thought i i know that's a charizard so I walked up to him and I said, hey, nice Pokemon keychain. And I introduced myself and we started talking. And he was really friendly and welcoming. And I felt glad that I attended. And um, we continued to stay in touch and got to know each other some more. And he heard a little bit of my story. And he sent this poem to me thinking that it would have some sort of impact on me the way it had on him. And you're welcome to close your eyes while I read it. I find myself—it's that it's easier to concentrate if I'm listening to spoken word. If I shut down my other senses, um, and it's led me to be more grounded and secure. I feel assured when I read it. Every couple months, I return back to it, and it grants me a sense of peace, and it renews my hope in humanity. And this poem was written by Max Ehrman. It was written in 1927 and it's called Desiderata. Go placidly amid the noise and haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. As far as possible without surrender, be on good terms with all persons. Speak your truth quietly and clearly And listen to others, even the dull and the ignorant. They too have their story. Avoid loud and aggressive persons. They are vexations to the spirit. If you compare yourself with others, you may become vain and bitter. For always there will be greater and lesser persons than yourself. Enjoy your achievements as well as your plans. Keep interested in your own career, however humble. It is a real possession in the changing fortunes of time. Exercise caution in your business affairs for the world is full of trickery, but let this not blind you to what virtue there is. Many persons strive for high ideals and everywhere, life is full of heroism. Be yourself especially do not feign affection, neither be cynical about love, for in the face of all aridity and disenchantment, it is as perennial as the grass. Take kindly the counsel of the years, gracefully surrendering the things of youth. Nurture strength of spirit to shield you in sudden misfortune, but do not distress yourself with dark imaginings, Many fears are born of fatigue and loneliness. Beyond a wholesome discipline, be gentle with yourself. You are a child of the universe. No less than the trees or the stars, you have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. Therefore, be at peace with God, whatever you conceive him to be, and whatever your labors and aspirations in the noisy confusion of life, keep peace with your soul. With all its sham, drudgery, and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful. Strive to be happy.
0: Thank you so much for those. And um, so now comes the time where we can get into groups of probably two. (laughs) It'd be good for folks to just pair up given the time we have left. We will run a little bit over, and so if you do need to go, um, just know that you are totally free to go. But I wanted to make sure that we had a chance to at least share a story of orientation with someone uh, beside us. So uh, we'll take about uh, seven to 10 minutes uh, for everybody to pair up and to share their story, uh, their text, their sacred story of orientation, and then we'll close after that. All right, thanks.